SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, the 27th of February, conversation with Zakaria Fielding of Electric Fields, reflecting of the, on the role of NITV in the media landscape and driving First Nations narratives. Zakaria also talks about Electric Fields music and how their live shows are crowd-driven, citing as an example their performance at uh, Mardi Gras in 2023, which featured a spectacular audience involvement. NITV Radio will also look at the 2023 Mardi Gras and the ongoing 2023 World Pride events. As you'll hear, these events are the largest event hosted in Sydney since the 2000 Olympics. In your program today, we also continue to explore Remote as Ever, a new book by Dr. David Scrimshaw about the development of Aboriginal community-controlled health organizations and the homelands movement in the Western Desert. All these stories and more after the latest news coming to you this afternoon from Nam on the Kulin Nation. Bertrand Tungandami, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. This bulletin, revamped scheme to strengthen GP care and improve long-term health outcomes for First Nations patients. The federal government has announced a $3.5 million fund to support LGBTQI plus organizations in the Asia-Pacific and thousands of Sri Lankan. Sri Lankans protest have, protesters have been dispersed by authorities during a mass protest in the city of Colombo. health scheme has been revamped in a bid to strengthening GP care for Indigenous Australians living with chronic health and mental health conditions. The Practice Incentives Program, Indigenous Health Initiative, has been updated and improved and will boost quality of care and outcomes for Indigenous patients. The PIPIHI pays medical practices to sign up to the program when a patient is registered and when certain patient outcomes are reached. Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians, Senator Malandiri McCarthy, says we are strengthening Medicare and improving the incentives for general practices, Aboriginal medical services and Aboriginal community-controlled health services to work closely with chronically ill patients and achieve better results for them, their families and the community. 
One of the loudest voices in the campaign against an indigenous voice to parliament says he wants to be convinced to switch sides. Aboriginal businessman Warren Mundane is a key figure on the no campaign. The former Labour Party national president and liberal candidate says he wants action on practical outcomes and economic development in indigenous communities. He says he personally feels the voice to parliament won't deliver that, but says he is good at switching sides and wants to hear the Yes campaign step up its case. The Yes campaign launched its week of action of community events last week, with the No campaign promising to do the same in the weeks ahead. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has announced a new national cyber security coordinator to prevent widespread data breaches of people's personal details. The government says their responsibilities will include preventing online attacks and leading a national cyber office. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says having a coordinator in place earlier would have made a significant difference during last year's breaches of Optus and Medibank customer data. A discussion paper has also been released outlining a seven-year strategy aiming to be in place from next year. Foreign Minister Penny Wong has announced a $3.5 million equity fund aimed at supporting LGBTQI plus organizations within the Asia-Pacific region. The funding is directed at civil society groups and human rights defenders at both the grassroots level as well as international partners in an effort to reduce stigma and legal discrimination. An international report released last week by the Global Philanthropy Project and Equality Australia had been calling on Australia to step up its leadership in this space, urging for them to up that funding to $15 million per year. Equality Australia CEO Anna Brown said the move was a great first step in helping communities that have an acute need for support. Asia-Pacific is uh, one of the most underfunded regions in the world when it comes to LGBTIQ plus human rights. And yet the need is really great when you look at the human rights violations that our communities face uh, across countries in the region. There's really positive signs of progress, but there's also um, really acute issues faced in terms of social exclusion, homelessness, violence. At least 59 migrants have died after the boat they were travelling in crashed into rocks in rough seas and broke apart off Italy's southern coast. Dozens of bodies, including those of children, washed up on a beach in the village of Astecato di Cutro on the eastern coast of Calabria with more bodies retrieved from the water. Italy's Coast Guard says 81 people have been rescued from the shipwreck. Officials believe the boat set sail from Turkey several days ago with at least 120 migrants from many countries, including Afghanistan, and had been trying to reach Europe through the Mediterranean. The governor of the Calabria region, Roberto Cuto, addressed reporters on the beach. It is a day of grief for Calabria. This is a struggle that falls into a general indifference. Calabria is a region that welcomes people. Last year we welcomed 18,000 migrants, but we can't be abandoned by Europe. This type of tragedy should have been avoided yesterday and not lived how we are living it today and how we will live it tomorrow. 
Thousands of Sri Lankan protesters have been dispersed by local authorities during a mass protest in the city of Colombo. The protesters, most of whom are members of the National People's Power Party, demanded that local government election be held as scheduled next month. The Sri Lankan president, Ranil Wickremesinghe, refused to release funds to the election commission, saying that funds were available only for essential items due to the current economic crisis. The island, which is struggling with its worst financial crisis in more than seven decades, had planned to hold local government polls next month before being postponed. The leader of of opposition party, the National People Power Party, Anora Kumara Disanayaka, accused the president of corruption in his address to the crowd of protesters. He came to power with 133 votes from thieves, thugs, drug smugglers and criminals. Renil does not have the people's power or the people's mandate. Today, the people's power is with us. Early results are beginning to arrive in the troubled Nigerian elections, which have left many voters feeling disenfranchised after glitches prevented many from voting on Saturday. Official results from the southwestern Ekiti state show a victory for ruling party candidate Bola Tinubu in one of his political strongholds. Polls were due to close in the presidential and parliamentary elections on Saturday, but some booths remained open until Sunday due to technical issues and attacks on polling stations. Nigerian local Ignatia Satuli said that despite the issues, the act of voting yesterday had lifted his spirits. Yesterday it was a terrible thing, but today they have tried to remedy the situation. We have come, we have come to exercise our franchise, which is making us to be happy. And we can see that things are working normally, as it should be. Palestinian authorities have come under fire by Hamas for attempting to de-escalate tensions in the West Bank with the Israeli government. The meeting in Jordan brought together top Israeli and Palestinian security chiefs to prevent further violence following a number of clashes in the Palestinian West Bank. Israel committed to stopping the authorization of any settler outposts in the occupied West Bank over the next six months. The Palestinian Authority also agreed to a joint proposal to end unilateral measures for a period of three to six months in an effort to bring calm to the region ahead of the coming Ramadan period. But Hamas has condemned the meeting with one spokesperson believing that the Palestinian Authority is collaborating with the enemy. It is the defeatist political and security meeting in Aqaba sponsored by America and attended by the Palestinian Authority. This meeting is being held while there are massacres and crimes committed by the Zionist occupation against our people, while the settlement activity in the West Bank and the Judaization of Jerusalem continue. Back home, hundreds of jet star passengers who were left stranded on the tarmac at Alice Springs Airport yesterday were reunited with their luggage today. Flight JQ-30 from Bangkok to Melbourne was stranded for several hours after the plane made an unexpected landing to treat a passenger who had fallen ill. The pilot then discovered an electrical fault, forcing Jetstar to organize a replacement aircraft with no ability to process international passengers in Alice Springs. Some passengers reported being stuck on the plane for close to 14 hours, unable to leave with no food provided. Jetstar spokesperson Ingrid Huest acknowledged the delay for customers to ABC Radio.
this was a unique and difficult situation where we needed to support a passenger that required urgent medical assistance and then work out the best way to get the remaining passengers on their way as quickly as possible given the unique situation of an international flight landing into a domestic airport. And to Sokar in uh, yesterday, Brisbane Roar has defeated Path Glory 2-1, giving new interim coach Nick Green the perfect start to his tenure. Roar's former coach Warren Moon was sacked last week after multiple poor performances. With a new playing style, with a new playing style on hand, the Roar came from a goal behind to record their first win in eight games. Green says he'll keep working to turn the club around with hopes of making the finals. The group's got it within them um, to win games, and obviously we want to want to win more games. Um, we just looked at a couple of areas this week where we think we can improve, and it's been it's been a tough week. It's been a tough week for the group, the club. It happens in football, and it's you know, it's not nice. But the lads have actually like gathered really well together and um, and really taken on board a lot of the stuff we've done, and we just tried to create an environment with the guys. But we're really really pleased with them. Yeah, buzzing for the win. In the other match, Adelaide United and Melbourne victory drew one all. And now a look at the weather around the country. Broome mostly cloudy 32, Perth partly cloudy 36, Adelaide similar conditions 26 degrees, Melbourne showers easing 20, Hobart mostly cloudy 19, Albury Wodonga sunny 28, Canberra partly cloudy 29, Wollongong a late shower or 2, 25 degrees, Sydney possible shower 27, Newcastle mostly sunny 30, Brisbane partly cloudy 31, Townsville cloudy 29, Keynes showers 30 degrees, Alice Springs, sunny 36, Darwin, rain 29, and the Torres Strait Islands, light rain and a top of 28 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. I'm Bertrand Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from NAM this uh, Monday afternoon. Coming up next, uh, our first story of the day, an interview with uh, Zachariah, Zachariah Fielding of Electric Fields. Well, in our conversation, Zachariah explained what drives their music, how they see their audience as part of uh, their team as a partner actually and uh, this is something that was uh, exemplified during their performance at Mardi Gras back in 2021 where the audience was fully involved and immersed in uh, the concert we begin our conversation reflecting on NITV and the channel's role in driving First Nations narratives it's very very important to me because I grew up basically watching NITV and hearing all these stories from across the country and from New Zealand and from all these other First Nations um, um, countries that had a story and something to say. And it was just really entertaining to know that it was there and, it's, and, it, and it was giving you insight of uh, life and culture and food and the way it is and what's happening there in the current situation where I am in my present life, I'm very honoured to be a part of this and to be also on the screen for those people. And I, I continue watching the show as well, NIT, because I, I, I just really love it because it gives there's a, there's a power of seeing stories and people and 
your people and your people's peoples. And to be a part of this celebration is very, very important. And I want to deliver. I'm going to deliver. And I want to come back again in the next the next 10 years and come again. I hope the show does well. And I hope all these stories and people that are doing amazing things across the country and around the globe, you know, just gets documented and shared with our people. And I feel like NITV is going to not just be like just for the Aboriginal, but it's going to hit for more human. Like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an interesting, um, element inside of NITV and there's always and I, like I knew it was for the aboriginals but every time you tuned into a next story and that next session came up it just took you deeper and deeper how universal people are outside of the western model going back to your career you said that uh, you felt you'd be an entertainer at a very young age at the age of nine I think how did it uh come to you? How did you feel it uh, appealing to you that you'd be a public? Well, I knew at nine because I wasn't really dominated in Western world. I had my community. I was I was raised in Mimley community where there's no traffic lights, no McDonald's, there's no fast food, there's no traffic. I knew that I was going to be an entertainer. I got stuck a little bit when I moved and I had to leave my community at the age of 13 to further my um, education because you, you had to leave at a certain grade. So I had to leave my community and go into the Western world and that's where I got bogged a little bit and I got confused on who I was, where I was, what I was doing. The language changed, understanding English language to its full capacity and what it entails and what its power is to get you into... The future, like there's a, it's a different model. So my nine-year-old is not so much Westerny. My thirteen-year-old, very Westerny. Then that's where the confusion happened. The stream of Western life and its rules and its games. But my nine-year-old knew it was going to be a entertainer because I love people. I love. Uh, I loved me as well. I loved me at nine. I lost me at thirteen if that makes sense. I knew more of myself because I was closer to innocence before I was dragged from Western world and its dirty, um, mischievous ways that it has and how it tells you you're black, you're gay, you're born, you're, uh, you're, you're, or you're getting reminded that you're, you're, you're being belittled almost. Yeah, and I didn't like that. My nine-year-old didn't care for that. My nine-year-old wanted to be... I'm a natural giver. I give more than I take. I shy away when I'm receiving a gift from anyone. That act of receiving something from somebody else, I've never felt comfortable with it. Me giving has always felt like that's what I was supposed to be doing. And it's not just entertaining and going boom. It's actually that act of giving. Like, I know I'm good at something, and that is at singing, writing, being a co-producer with my partner, Michael, if I know what my goods are and I know how to, like, I'll, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, then I, if I know how to create something, I know how to give it as well, as well as producing it. That act of giving is such an interesting form, you know? It's more, it's more. There's something more in that. Yeah, and it's not just through music. You give through all your forms of expression because you're not just a musician, a singer, a songwriter, you're also a painter. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of your paintings are actually at the NGV in uh, <laughs> Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you said that um, you use your voice 
as a way of expressing yourself, mm-hmm. but there's no difference from how you use painting. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more how you use those forms of art? So again, electric fields, that stage is a performative, very physical, and it's dominated with sound. With it, when I when I go onto the canvas, it's a similar stage, but I'm all by myself. I'm the producer. I'm co. I'm doing. I'm doing everything. I'm bringing the stage together on the canvas, using my direction, using my emotions, using uh, all these different characters or all these um, different um, people that have touched me in the week with my life or moved me or flattered me or insulted me or challenged me or made me feel a certain way is on my canvas and is also on my stage as electric fields, but number one priority is you stay human. You stay, you give humility. You accept that you're everything and you're nothing at the same time. I like sitting with that because it just makes me feel large and small. And I like that feeling. I like being yin and yang and yes and no and nothing and everything in one. Because I think that's what we are, just in general and period. And I get to turn that into art and I get to paint it and I get to make music out of it. And I get to live off of it and I get to live comfortably off of it. And I get to meet new people and I get to do it all over again. That's the only way I know how to live my life right now. And I wish that for everybody. If this is what living is supposed to feel. I don't know if I'm happy or not, though. I just know I'm in the moment. I'm in the moment, <laughs> yeah. The music you produce, the performance, the on-stage presence, your interaction with the public. I saw a video of you at the 2021 Mardi Gras. The audience was just electrified oh. by your presence and the way you perform and sing. And Tell us about that performance. Oh, yeah. The Mardi Gras, that was 2021. Oh, that was amazing. Look, I love big arenas like that. There's so much to play with. People make that happen. Like, yes, you got electric fields, but I've always known for when I'm given to an audience, when a, my agent tells me I'm performing here, I automatically know that I've got a co worker and that is the audience the audience conjure helps me conjure what love is what happiness is supposed to feel like or what celebration is supposed to feel like the audience have never ever disappointed an electric fields act bringing something and that's why i really do respect the audience that much because they're not just an audience they're my co-workers audience co-workers how did you survive during COVID when there was no audience? I painted the, during the COVID period. Yeah, so I was, um, me, Michael and I, we had this opportunity to go to America, but then everything just closed down. Everything had to shut down. So the borders closed. And that's when I picked up a paintbrush and started painting and made a career during the um, COVID period. And now, that was in... T- when did the COVID thing happen? 20, 2020. And from 2020 to now, I've had four sold-out exhibitions and I've got a 
fifth exhibition coming up next year in Berlin, hopefully, and then in London, maybe as well. Would there be a song Anangu to Berlin or Anangu to London? I reckon there will be a song. There might be even a collaboration with an artist that I might like in Berlin or in London. I really like... Because you know how we did the Eurovision thing and we did the um, collaboration with um, Kino. I loved doing the um, collaboration with those guys. I want to do a whole tour around the globe and collaborate with all First Nations people from their continents. I think that's going to happen. It's going to happen because I've already said it's going to happen and my manifesting skills are pretty... um, Top. So, performing with the world musicians and your music, honestly, if I didn't know Electric Field, mm. it would be very hard to categorize it. Yeah. Your voice, the sounds, the melodies mm. could mm. be from uh, anyone like uh, Angelique Kijo yeah. from Benin. It yeah. could be, it's from everywhere. Yeah. And that's what I love about it is because. Electric fields and its-ness doesn't identify as anything. It never really did identify as anything. We didn't want to identify it. We don't know who it is and what this energy is, but I like that it's evolving. This baby that we've created seven years ago who is electric fields is just starting to learn how to really walk now. Like, this baby is learning how to talk now, and I'm really interested to seeing how that unfolds. I'm one of the caretakers for Electric Fields and its energy. Michael is the other. The, the audience is the other. Like, I'm just really looking forward to seeing what this sound sounds like. And I just, I trust where it's going. But it is very worldly. It's, I just, that's all I can put it down to. Because I can't describe it. When I'm, inside of an, when I'm inside of our music on a live scale, I get really, really lost. I'm not, I don't know what it is. It just is what it is. And I don't know what it is. And I don't think the lang- like English language can fathom it. Because it's something that we're all looking for, but we found it. But then it's like, what is it? And that was uh, Electric electric Fields Zachariah Fielding. And this is just part of our conversation. You can find the entire conversation on our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. We must now go to a break, but when we come back, we explore Mardi Gras 2023 in Sydney and World Pride. These events are considered the largest gatherings in Sydney since the 2000 Olympics. Stay tuned. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Tens of thousands of people have watched the world's largest Mardi Gras parade in Sydney, which featured 200 floats and 12,000 participants, including Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. The event brought people of all cultures and sexual orientations together in a powerful display of community and acceptance. Esam Al-Ghalib reports. It was a historic night for Sydney. Tens of thousands descended upon Oxford Street to watch about 12,500 marchers on 200 floats dance, sing and celebrate their way through the spiritual home of Sydney's LGBTIQ plus community as they commemorated the parade's homecoming. Happy Mardi Gras! 
The revelers made a riotous rainbow return to the queer community's spiritual home with the Mardi Gras reawakening Oxford Street for the first time since 2020. Dykes on bikes and their male counterparts led the charge, delighting parade viewers as they filled the streets with diesel exhaust and queer joy. Other Mardi Gras hits included Surf Life Saving, who wore budgie smugglers and beach towels, and DIY Rainbow's We Love Britney Spears float, which blasted Baby One More Time from its back speakers. Anthony Albanese made history as the first Prime Minister to march in the parade. Mr. Albanese led the Rainbow Labour float with Environment Minister Tanya Plebersek and New South Wales Opposition Leader Chris Minns. It's unfortunate that I am the first, but this is a celebration of modern Australia. We're a diverse, inclusive Australia, and that's a good thing. Before marching, Mr. Albanese said the advances Australia has made in LGBTIQ rights over the past 45 years have been about respect. But we need to remember as well that after 45 years, it began with a campaign for law reform. It's about equality and it's about respecting people for who they are, no matter who they love, no matter uh, where they live, no matter what their identity is, it's about respect. The Prime Minister was dressed plainly in jeans and a shirt, choosing not to compete with the fashionistas. The celebration, whose theme was Gather, Dream, Amplify, featured some Mardi Gras veterans. Kate Rowe is one 78er who took part in the first Mardi Gras in 1978. She remembers suffering abuse at the hands of police and others. I got uh, dragged by my hair into a paddy wagon. Someone threw a dustbin at me. Panchira, who's from Venezuela, went all out with a couple of friends all in colorful outfits that included rather large and multi-feathered headdresses and with a couple of horns protruding. Everyone is happy and we're coming to enjoy everything here. We are from Venezuela, by the way. <laughs> Why do you think it's important to have this kind of representation at Mardi Gras? What do you think? Uh, because there's, a, there's a, always a continual struggle, right? The things that we've fought for you know, could easily be taken away. So let's always ensure that we celebrate what we have because I think it could so easily be taken away, right? So we're in a troubled world. Let's, um, it's been a troubled few years. Um, let's celebrate what we have and peace and love, really. And Acceptance. enjoy together. Yeah, and beauty. <laughs> like and a family. <laughs> because we're all family. Yeah, family. That's yeah. very true. The Australian Federal Police were also there, but not as a show of force, but rather to show their support for the community and their own gay and lesbian officers. Our love for the AFP, our love for inclusivity and diversity, all of the happy vibes. Just to celebrate um, the gay and lesbian community and to show the support of the AFP and uniformed police officers for this great community event. Senator Lydia Thorpe was moved on from the parade by police after trying to block a float. Video footage shows the former Greens, now independent senator from Victoria, lying on her back on Oxford Street and temporarily halting the parade. Two police officers then approached Senator Thorpe as the crowd began to boo and chant for her removal, before she gets to her feet herself.
New South Wales police have confirmed that a woman was removed from the parade at the request of organizers for breaching the terms of her participation. Four people were arrested for offenses, including assaulting police, after one officer suffered a suspected broken nose during an arrest on Oxford Street, and a second officer suffered grazes and a black eye during an alleged assault on the way to Moore Park. World Pride will continue for another week before finishing with a historic march across the Sydney Harbour Bridge on Sunday. World Pride has been Sydney's biggest event since the 2000 Olympics and is expected to host more than half a million people across its 300 or so events. Assam Al Ghalib, SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. In uh, remote as ever, Dr. David uh, Scrimger tells the story of his work as a doctor in uh, isolated communities in Australia's western desert in the late uh, 1970s. The book, Remote as Ever, explores the development of Aboriginal community-controlled health organizations and the homelands movements, as well as the western desert people's struggle for autonomy. Dr. Scrimger says Congress was one of the pioneers of Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations. Congress was one of the early Aboriginal community-controlled health services. Um, um, but, uh, you know, in the, in the early 70s when Congress emerged, you know, Aboriginal community-controlled health services were starting up in various places. Um, um, Congress was certainly the first one in a, in a more remote area. And it certainly has been a, an organisation which has provided a lot of inspiration for for Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people like myself um, um, who have had the um, the fortune fortunate experience of being able to work uh, within Congress and within similar organisations. Yeah. Now, throughout and, the book, you know, I, I might just say that you know, to, to me, um, as a, a non-Aboriginal doctor, um, it just makes sense. Um, that if I'm working in, if, I, if I'm a, a doctor for Aboriginal people, then it's appropriate for me to be working with, within a structure where I am accountable to the Aboriginal community. And I think this is one of the, the strengths, I talk a bit, bit about this in the book, I think it's one of the strengths of the, of the Aboriginal community-controlled health service movement, among many other strengths. It does provide um, a, a place where non-Aboriginal people can be employed in a far more appropriate way than if they're employed by government or by a you know, sort of non-Aboriginal organisation. If you're working within an Aboriginal organisation where you are accountable to the community, then you are much more likely to be effective, I think. And that's always been my experience and my, my feeling about um, the way um, that things should work. Because you appear to be a staunch supporter of Aboriginal autonomy, what are the health benefits of uh, the homeland movement and uh, the Aboriginal community-controlled health movement? I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that um, a sense of autonomy is uh, is good for one's health. Um, um, that uh, if if that if you if you feel you have more control over your own lives, then over your own life, then um, um, that will have a, a positive impact on your health. The Australian um, epidemiologist who's 
been based in London for a long time now, Sir Michael Marmot, um, has done a lot of work in this area, which proves pretty conclusively, I think, um, what most people would intuitively um, believe to be the case, that um, if you feel... If, you, if you've got control over your own life, you're, you're likely to be healthier. So that in itself, I think, is a reason to be supportive of any movement which promotes autonomy um, for any group of people. But um, I think, you know, in the Australian context where we do have this significant gap in um, health outcomes, then it's obviously very important for Aboriginal people to have, um, have this sense of autonomy. But there are a whole lot of other health benefits from both the Homelands Movement and from the um, Aboriginal Community Control Health Service um, movement, I think. I mean, I think that the Homelands movement, it, 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 just concentrate on that perhaps, um, the fact that it means people are living in, in smaller communities on their country um, where they're able to maintain their a, a more traditional lifestyle, where they're able to um, look after their, 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 their sites, uh, where they're able to um, maintain a bit more of a traditional um, diet by hunting and gathering, you know, using them, um, uh, having access to bush foods is going to be beneficial to their health. One of the things I talk about in the book, um, as you'll know, is that um, what I see as being um, one of the, the most um, promising areas for future development uh, for remote communities is the land management movement, the, 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 the for support country, for, yeah. for people to look to care for their country, to, to um, um, be involved in activities which um, ensure that the vast estate um, that exists around uh, the remote Aboriginal communities is um, being cared for, that, um, that um, feral animals are being controlled, that the, 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 the country is being burnt at the appropriate times in the appropriate way that the country is being cared for because, uh, it, you know, it, we have a responsibility as a nation, I think, to, to look after our country, to look after our environment. Um, I think you know, people are increasingly aware of this and the best person to look after the, the more remote part of parts of Australia obviously are the people for whom that is their traditional land. Um, so I think the, um, the, the land management, uh, the, any support for land management for caring for country um, from government is one of the, the most um, um, cost-effective things that, that uh, governments could be doing to support the autonomy and health of people living in remote Aboriginal communities. No, I might say that uh, from my perspective, just after reading the book and um, just uh, seeing your conclusions, uh, this book for anyone looking at examining the calls for treaty, voice, self-determination, this is, although it's coming from a medical practitioner, this is a very good start, reading this book. Mm, well, thank you, Bertrand. I certainly hope that um, people do find it um, um, worthwhile to read um, um, to yeah, get a bit of an understanding of how... The, the, the aspirations for autonomy of people in the most sort of remote desert communities in Australia has always been very strong and, uh, and, and, and hasn't always been adequately supported by governments, particularly in the last 20 years or so, but hopefully we will see um, a more positive change in, in, in coming years.
And that was uh, Dr. David uh, Scrimger, author of the book Remote as Ever, a new book exploring the development of Aboriginal community controlled health organizations and the Western, the homelands movements in uh, the Western Desert, as well as the Western Desert people's struggle for autonomy. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And uh, this brings us to the end of uh, today's uh, program. Bertrand Tungendaming here. I am uh, Bertrand Tungendame, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. Yeah,